Well, we are essentially studying the story of the children of Israel. After all, it was, Israel was a man. His name was Jacob, and then it was changed to Israel, and then he had all these sons, Reuben and Judah and Levi and Benjamin and Joseph, who had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, Zebulun, Gad, etc., etc. And we're here at the end of Moses' life, and Moses pronounces a blessing upon each of these children of Israel and their descendants for whom they are named. So, for example, if you're Reuben's grandson or great-grandson, you were part of the tribe of Reuben. So when Moses addresses Reuben, he's addressing you and your whole extended family. So we are essentially studying the story of the children of Israel. Tonight we have Moses' blessing upon the children of Israel before he dies. And in any story, in any family tree, in any group of people, like an extended family, the story of any individual or any group of people like these extended families, there are low points as well as high points. There are tension points and crises. Do you ever wonder now, today, in the middle of your story or your, your family's story, does God still care for us or has He abandoned us? What do we make of death, conflict, perhaps joblessness or other kinds of adversity that meet with us? Is God with us? Or are we alone on our journey through life, left to fend for ourselves? If God were to speak His heart for us, and His will for us, or for our family, directly, as He spoke to each of these families in Deuteronomy 33, what would He say? What does God desire for you and your family? Are you afraid of poor health or danger? And would you like to hear God say to you and your family, your extended family, what He said to Benjamin in Deuteronomy 33 and verse 12, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. Are you desirous to prosper in business? Would you like to hear what He said to Joseph in Deuteronomy 13, Torah, sorry, 33, 13? Blessed by the Lord be His land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months, etc., etc. Would those things comfort you? Would you like to hear those things? Well, listen, sorry to disappoint you, but he said these things to Benjamin and to the tribe of Joseph. Not to, not to Riddersguards or Alines or Taylors or whoever else. So they don't apply directly to you, to your family, to me and to my family. Likewise, our text for this evening, when, when God addresses Israel as a whole, after speaking to each family group individually, 
He speaks to them together in Deuteronomy 33, 26-29, which I just read for you. Likewise, just as each of these individual tribal blessings don't apply directly to you, neither does this blessing to the people of Israel collectively apply directly to you, or directly to us collectively. However, that doesn't mean that we can't find some application for ourselves and some encouragement in the passage. Indeed, we can. And that's my aim this evening, to draw out how it applies to us and how we may be encouraged by it. So with that in mind, let's begin looking a little more closely at Deuteronomy 33, 26-29. Over 40 years prior to the words he speaks in the text before us today, Moses drew near to a curiosity which he beheld in the wilderness as he tended sheep. A bush that was burning and yet was not consumed. And there he met with God who sent him to Egypt to rescue the people of Israel. Moses obeyed reluctantly and he went and he led the children of Israel up out of Egypt where they had been slaves. Moses had led them through the wilderness these 40 years and to the cusp of the promised land. They're almost there. In fact, they had begun fighting some of the peoples east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og and so forth. Here before us are Moses' last recorded words. This is the end of his final speech to the people of Israel after providing leadership to them for over 40 years. Now God's direction, Moses has already appointed Joshua as his successor. He's concerned that the people of Israel not be like sheep without a shepherd, remember? So he's asked God and God has provided Joshua to be something of a shepherd to the people of Israel. But in this, Moses' final speech, he wants Israel to know that it is not ultimately Joshua at the helm but it is God himself he uses his final words not to pass the baton to Joshua not to say now you make sure you listen to him just like you listen to me he uses his final words to say oh Jeshurun there is none like God he uses his final words to urge Israel to trust God as they enter the promised land. Israel was to trust in God, confident of His help promised in the Sinai covenant, or the Old Covenant, the Mosaic covenant. All of these are synonymous terms. True to His word, God had made a nation of Abraham's descendants. God had said way back in Genesis 17, 6, to Abraham, that I will make you into nations, And Israel is the first and most obvious fulfillment of that promise. They were a multitude when they had left Egypt, but not a nation yet, per se. But at Sinai, when God entered into covenant with them, giving them laws and defining their borders, they became the nation of Israel. And this nation was a privileged nation. In that they had an access to God that was unheard of in other nations. 
As Paul says in Romans, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Israelite nation had God's word to a degree that no other nation did. Though God wrote His law on the human heart at creation, sin had obscured its clarity. And so God reiterated that law very clearly on tablets of stone and gave His law to the nation of Israel. No other nation had that clarity. God also gave to Israel civil laws and a system of ceremonies designed to instruct the nation about His character and about the nature of true religion after Adam's fall into sin. Though again, God had revealed something of Himself to all men at creation and in and through creation. No other nation had the clarity that Israel did about who God is. So there was no other nation which had access. There's no other nation who could say that God dwells among us and He is our God and we are His people. No other nation had the clarity that Israel did. And it was not just unparalleled clarity and access to God that Israel had. Israel also had unparalleled benevolence from God. That is kindness and goodness. Though God provided sunshine and rain to the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Egyptians alike, for as Jesus says many years later, God sends His Son and rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, there is a common grace which was extended not only to Israel but also to these other nations. God did not show the same degree of benevolence to those nations that He showed to Israel. God entered into a covenant with Israel that is a special kind of relationship to them. And according to the terms of this covenant, He promised all Israelites in Exodus 19.5 that if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. Closer to our text this evening, he promised in Deuteronomy 28 that if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. God condescended to relate covenantally to the nation of Israel, to bring them closer to him than any other nation to show them more benevolence than He showed towards any other nation, giving them a wonderful opportunity to enjoy His blessing and favor. Also, in keeping with this covenant, Moses points out in the text before us today that God was ready to help the nation of Israel on an ongoing basis. There is no, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, Deuteronomy 33 26. Jeshurun is just another name for Israel, remember. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help. Now there is none like God, O Israel, who rode through the heavens to your help. Maybe you're just referring back to a time like the Exodus when God helped them. But there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides present tense through the heavens to your help. 
the whole thrust of Moses' teaching here in this section is that the nation of Israel should trust in God because God had committed himself to being a help to the people of Israel. If they would just see and acknowledge God's power and might and benevolence toward them, he would bear his mighty right arm for their good again and again and again. God would be like a ceiling above them, riding through the heavens to their help. God would be behind them. He has their back, so to speak. God would go in front of them. He thrust out your enemies before you said destroy above them behind them in front of them look at all the spatial language in this blessing here walls ceiling and underneath them like a house built on a rock with a strong foundation underneath are the everlasting Arms. The eternal God would be, look at the spatial language here, their dwelling place. When they look up, they will see Him riding through the heavens. When they look around, they'll see God before them on the horizontal plane. When they look down, see underneath, they're the everlasting arms. The eternal God would be their comfort zone, their safe, warm bed the roof over their heads, their locked doors, their shelter from the storm, their bunker from the bomb or the hurricane. Moses speaks about the future in this blessing as if it's in the past, since it is so certain. When, when two men are talking and one says, I would like you to do such and such for me. The other might say, consider it done. Moses here considers it done. Remember, they're, they're at the outset of the conquest of the promised land. But what does it say in verse 27? He thrust out the enemy before you. Not he will. Or sorry, not he, yeah, not he will, but he has. Not he will thrust out the enemy before you, but he, he already has, essentially, thrust out the enemy before you. Moses considers it done because God is faithful to his word, and so it's as if God has said, consider it done. They will dwell in safety. Jacob lived alone in safety. Matthew Henry says, this is verse 28, by the way, they will dwell in safety although they are alone. They need no other allies if God is their ally. If God is with us, who can be against us? They don't need the Pharaoh of Egypt. They don't need the king of Babylon. They don't need to call the Syrians for help or, or whatever as they do so much so many years later 
in the biblical storyline. Look, they will dwell in safety even though they are alone because they need no other allies because God is going to ride through the heavens to their help. And as Matthew Henry also says, trusting in God, they'll dwell in safety because they are alone. Refusing to mix with the idolatrous nations and taking on their idolatries and other sins. God will preserve Jacob alone as he deals in judgment with other nations. If the Israelites will just trust in God then, as Deuteronomy 33:28 implies that they ought to, the land will be full of grain and wine. The heavens will drop down dew. This recalls the covenant blessings for obedience outlined in Deuteronomy 28. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, that chapter begins. And verse 7 says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated. Or, sorry, I went to the wrong section here. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, verse 2 says, Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. They will live in a land where the heavens drop down dew, full of grain and wine, if they will trust in this Lord who rides through the heavens to their heaven, who is their dwelling place. If the Israelites will just trust in God, then as Deuteronomy 33.29 says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Again, this is reminiscent of the covenant blessings in Deuteronomy 28. If you will obey the voice of the Lord your God, verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Moses' final words to the nation in the verses before us tonight, Deuteronomy 33, 26-29, is to urge the nation of Israel to trust in God. Whatever someone says last, if they know they're dying, that usually indicates their priority. Right? Maybe you don't, maybe you don't know you're going to die. And you get, end up getting in a car accident and then the last thing you said to a loved one is make sure you pick up some AA batteries. Right? But if you're laying there on your deathbed and you know you're going and you realize that it's time, you're not going to say the flashlight needs some new batteries. Right? When you know you're going, what you say indicates your priority. What is most important. What is central. And what Moses does with his last words is tell the people of Israel, there is none like God who is there to help you, who will be your dwelling place. Look to Him implicitly in the land of bare grain and wine. The heavens will drop down dew. You'll have victory over your enemies. Although you're alone, because you're alone, God's chosen possession, God's chosen people. This is what Moses does with his final words. 
Israel should trust in God, not ultimately in Joshua then, and certainly not in the armies nor the gods of the other nations. They should remember the special covenantal commitment that God has toward them, and trust in Him in order that they might experience His help and His blessings. This is the last thing that Moses says to the people of Israel. It's a fitting and a beautiful end to his course of care for them. What I just explained is what Moses' final words meant for those who first heard it. The Israelites under the Mosaic Covenant or the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. The Old Covenant. What does it mean for us? To answer this, we must consider the connectedness with the superiority of the New Covenant. We Christians, like the nation of Israel, are ourselves a nation. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Like Israel in the Old Testament times, we are covenantally related to God. However, the covenant that God has entered into with us is better than the covenant that He entered into with them. Hebrews 8.6 tells us that explicitly. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So there are different promises in the new covenant than in the old. Different different promises which pertain to the holy nation that we are and have become in the new covenant than pertains to the nation that was constituted by the Sinai covenant. Different promises, but better promises according to the author of Hebrews. So we don't necessarily claim Israel's promises directly as our own, since they were promised to Israel under a different covenant. We don't just assume that if we, if we faithfully obey God, then the plants in our garden will not wither or die. We don't go and directly take these things and believe that if we have if we are obedient that we will experience fertility and victory in battle and so on and so forth we don't go and grab those promises and bring them directly across into our own lives however because Hebrews 8 tells us that the promises of the new covenant are are better than the promises of the old then we can be sure that Old Covenant Israel was in no way more privileged than believers in the New Covenant are. Though they received at that time unprecedented clarity and benevolence from God by virtue of God's covenant with them then, in the New Covenant we receive even greater clarity and benevolence from God than they had. Therefore, we might have to understand the promises in a different sense than they were intended to be understood by Old Covenant Israel. 
but we can claim the principle behind each of these commandments in Deuteronomy, or pardon me, the principle behind each of these promises made to the nation of Israel here in Deuteronomy 33 as our own. And we can appreciate how Christ brings these promises home to us even more fully in the New Covenant. This principle applies to our text today in this way. If God's Old Covenant people had grounds for confidence in God's help based on the Sinai Covenant, then how much more should we who are under the Calvary Covenant, so to speak, compare the mounts? How much more should we be confident in God's help? The church, therefore, is to trust God, confident of His help promised in the New Covenant. As God committed Himself to being a ceiling above the Israelites, riding through the heavens to their help, as He committed to going in front of them and watching their back as His arms were underneath them, carrying them at times and catching them at others, so He is doing all of these things for His church. Yet it's even better for the church. See, in the Old Covenant, there were curses for disobedience. The principle of the Old Covenant was do this and live. Romans 10.5 says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So this, in the Sinai Covenant, the principle was if you do this, then God will be to you a ceiling. Riding through the heavens to your hell, a rear guard, a forerunner, and a support underneath you. That's very clear from the covenant blessings in Deuteronomy 28. Every time, as we read through the Old Testament, that God treated Israel better than that, it was not because He was faithfully keeping His covenant with them. It was because He was doing more than He was covenantally obligated to do for them. Grace upon grace, see? The principle of the Old Covenant, strictly speaking, was do this and live. So in the Sinai Covenant, the principle was, if you do this, then God shall be the one who rides through the heavens to your heart. He will go before you, thrust out your enemy, thrusting out your enemies and saying, destroy. And underneath will be the everlasting arms. But in the New Covenant, Christ has answered the demands of the law for us. So the principle is no longer do this and live. The principle of the New Covenant is Christ has already done it. And so we live. God is now then to us. And, and mark this. Unconditionally. A ceiling. A forerunner, a rear guard, and a support underneath. God has given us not only an opportunity to receive His blessing and protection, but promises guaranteed by our covenant-keeping surety. There is none like God, O oh church, who rides through the heavens to your heaven. Underneath are the everlasting arms. 
and it cannot but be this way for us because of Christ Jesus. But we should know that this juncture, that the type of blessings that Israel received for obedience were primarily physical and earthly and were intended to be pictures, types, and shadows of greater spiritual blessings to come in the new covenant. So though blessings in our baskets and in our kneading bowls, listen, will be part of our eternal inheritance. No one's going to be hungry and needy in heaven. You understand? Though blessings in our baskets and in our kneading bowls will be part of our eternal inheritance, we can't claim blessings in our baskets and our kneading bowls here and now because these things haven't been promised to us in the new covenant. However, we feast spiritually. What would you rather have? If you'd rather have a loaf of bread than the Word of God, you're not weighing things up properly. Listen, no matter how hungry our tummies get, we can come here Sunday by Sunday and be nourished spiritually by the true bread that comes down from heaven, Christ Jesus. We can open this book day by day on our own and taste and see that the Lord is good. You see how there are, there's something better than baskets, it, blessings in our baskets and our needed bowls, right? There are blessings in our spiritual baskets and needing bowls. So you say, well, well, it's just an ethereal pie in the sky thing. I'd rather have bread. You really fail to understand just how precious this spiritual food that we are promised and always have in Christ Jesus is. We can always say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though protection from physical harm is part and parcel of our eternal inheritance. Again, you're not going to have to lock your doors in heaven. You're not going to need to install a security system. You don't need to get a mean dog in heaven. Alright? Though physical safety is part of our eternal inheritance, we can't claim protection from physical harm here and now because it hasn't been promised to us in the new covenant. Jesus says, do not fear those who can merely kill the body. Implicit in that is, there are those who can kill the body. And church history bears out that sometimes they will. We can't just claim this physical protection then. But the greater protection, the greater blessing of protection from spiritual harm has been promised to us here and now in Christ. If God is with us, Who shall be against us? What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. The answer is nothing. Not famine, not nakedness, not peril, not sword. You see, we're protected in a better way. (laughs) What, what What would you rather have? The security of your body? Or the security of your soul. And no one, 
no one can shoot me. No one can stab me. Right? Or nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Again, if you think that these old covenant blessings were better, you've miscalculated. Grossly miscalculated. So as we read Deuteronomy 33, 26 to 29, and consider how these promises apply to us in Christ, we need to look through this lens of the new covenant, which contains promises which are greater, always greater, and generally speaking, more spiritual than the old covenant promises. By the way, spiritual doesn't mean less real. You know that? God riding through the heavens to our help man and through the skies in His majesty isn't fulfilled to us in the destruction of our earthly enemies with bullets and swords and whatnot. But it is fulfilled to us in Christ Jesus triumphing over the prince of the power of the air as Satan is called in Ephesians 2.2 and leading these principalities in triumphal procession as Colossians puts it God going before us and saying destroy isn't fulfilled to us in political conquest the phenomenon of Christians taking seats of power in national governments it's not fulfilled to us in Christian prime ministers and MPs and presidents it's fulfilled to us, rather, in Christ building His church, in His kingdom, conquering, in the conquest of Jesus Christ over His enemies, in His kingdom advancing to the ends of the earth. And the promise of God's everlasting arms being underneath us isn't fulfilled to us as sustenance in our wilderness wanderings, whereby we can go buy a pair of shoes at Payless and they won't wear out for 40 years. And if we want meat, we can just expect a whole load of birds to drop in our gap so we can just go out and gather them up. <laughs> now, the promise of God's everlasting arms being beneath us is fulfilled to us as God's sustenance throughout our pilgrimage to our promised land which is not an earthly Canaan but is the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells until we get there great Jehovah is guiding us pilgrims through this barren land carrying us pilgrims through this barren land you know, I used to think that, that poem, Footprints, was really cheesy and stupid. You know what? It's a, a guy that has a dream and he, he sees two sets of footprints in the sand and comes somehow to understand that they represent his footprints and God's walking together through life. And then he comes to a point where he sees only one set of footprints and he says, God, I noticed that these were at the hardest stages of my journey. Why, when things were so difficult for me, did you abandon me and I had to walk alone? Why is there only one set of footprints? 
And God says in this poem, my child, a set of footprints isn't yours, it's mine. It was at those seasons of life when I carried it. Listen, in the most difficult times, God really is carrying me. I said I used to think that poem was Jesus. <laughs> but there's something really profound and really beautiful. And it's consistent with what we read in Deuteronomy 33 that when things are really difficult in our lives, we Christians can know that we are being carried. That underneath are the everlasting arms. God will never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised us so clearly. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because Christ Jesus has kept all the demands, it's not a conditional, if you do this, then underneath shall be the everlasting arms. It's because Christ has done this, for sure, therefore, unconditionally, always, in every season of your life, Christian, underneath are the everlasting arms. This is true for you. This is true for us as the church. Do you ever wonder about the prognosis for the church? Will she be okay? Will she live? I'm not talking about CRBC particularly. I'm talking about the church more broadly, universally. Can she regain the health that she showed in ages past? when there was fire both in the pulpits and in the pews? Will she be able to fulfill the great commission to make disciples of all nations? Or will she fizzle out and compromise herself to death before that? Will she be revived? Will people respond to her witness to the gospel? Brothers and sisters, in evangelism, in church planting, God rides through the heavens to our help. He rides through the skies in His majesty. He thrusts out the enemies before us. He is the shield of our help and the sword of our triumph. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, but God thrusts out the God of this world. In the cases of all who are saved. And he gathers in his people. He conquers. The gates of hell shall not prevail against our conquering Christ. The church wins. She is sustained by the Lord. She conquers with the Lord's help. Christian, I hope you can see by this point that though you may sometimes feel like I'll never make it, because Christ Jesus has satisfied all the conditions for you, God is a God who rides through the heavens to your help. Through the skies in His majesty. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you are a blood-bought child of God. 
And this shall go well with you, ultimately. I hope you can see also that as it goes with you, so shall it fare with the church as a whole. God will not abandon her. God will rise through the heavens to her help. Though the beast makes war on the two witnesses as we saw this morning. Maybe conquers them in pockets and places here and there. She's always revived. Always vindicated. And the witness, the light of God in this world never goes out. God is to us, personally and corporately, a ceiling above our head. He rides through the heavens to our help, through the skies in His majesty. God goes before us on the horizontal plane around us, putting down our spiritual enemies. And no matter how low we get throughout this pilgrimage, know that lower still are God's arms. Underneath are the everlasting arms. We can never get so low that God can't or won't stoop to cradle you, to cradle us. He holds us. So personally and corporately, God is a roof over His people's head, walls on every side, and a sturdy support underneath. See the spatial language here? This is why Moses says, he's mixing metaphors. But after using all this spatial language above, beside, and front, Underneath, says the eternal God is your dwelling place. So we will not only live, but thrive at home with God, so to speak, wherever we happen to find ourselves, through Christ Jesus and the new covenant. Forget home is where the heart is. Home is the eternal God. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. So we are always home. God has promised to help His people, personally and corporately. Trust this. Believe this. Act as though it's true. Remind yourself when you forget. Commit to memory the precious promises contained in these verses. Lay your head on them every night as if they were a pillow. And wherever your bedroom actually is, wherever your home, remember that most ultimately it's not the bricks and boards around you that are your dwelling place. For us Christians, most ultimately, the eternal God is where we belong, where we live, where we're at home, where we're safe where we protect it, where we thrive, where we flourish, where we are blessed, where we want to be, where we want to get back to, and so on and so forth. The eternal God is our dwelling place. So we can trust Him in the low points as well as the high points, the tension points and crises in our stories. We have something so much better than the temporal blessings pronounced upon Benjamin and Joseph, even the whole nation of Israel, here in Deuteronomy 33. We have the greater fulfillment 
of these things in and through Christ Jesus. So we can trust God with our today and with all of our tomorrows.